This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we welcome back our favorite paleontologist, George Phillips. He's the paleontology curator for the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and today we'll talk about the state of fossils around the state. Also ahead is an upcoming lecture about the 41-year history of the museum's paleontology program, so we'll take a trip down memory lane and remember some of the program's biggest finds. Dr. Major's not here, so if you could hold off your pet questions, we'll be back uh, with those next Thursday. But you can join our conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven. MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. And if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at six. So good morning. Hope that you're both doing well this morning. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. Libby. Uh, Libby, any events that you want to tell us about? Yes, and our good friend Adam Ronke. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a little bit, and he's got a 2020 Master Naturalist class, okay. and mm-hmm. I think we've talked about it enough that some of our listeners might remember, but if not, if you are interested in learning a little bit about everything in the outdoors of Mississippi, it's a wonderful thing to do, and um, I've been through the class and I've helped teach a few of them, and, um, but it's, it is a commitment of time. Uh, this one will be every Tuesday, and I think it's for eight weeks, and it's from 9 to 3 o'clock each day, and the, the first Tuesday that it starts is March the 24th. Okay. So if you'll just uh, do a search for Mississippi Master Naturalist, um, the registration information will all come up, and because um, you'd have to pay to be in it, it's well worth it. From my angle, I, I really enjoyed it. Will they have a paleontology and, um, lecturer? Well, you know what? We, you need to talk to Adam and see if No, I am the paleontology oh, lecturer. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. You already knew. Oh, he's, he's, yeah. Okay, great. Sorry. So, yes, you'll brother. get to have some um, almost one-on-one time with George, and I'm sure you could bring your class. That's fine. Bring your fossils to class and get them identified. So anyway, it is a lot of fun. So it starts there March the 24th and goes through the middle of May and um, on Tuesday. So uh, think about it if you want to get involved. All right. Uh, in the news, uh, the Super Bowl is this weekend. Uh, dogs always seem to be playing a role. There's the Puppy Bowl and now the Dog Bowl, both highlighting rescue animals from around the country. I think uh, the Budweiser Clydesdales are always popular in ads, although I'm not sure uh, if they'll be featured this year. And uh, there's a Dalmatian in some of those ads as well. Also, um, there is a special commercial about the University of Wisconsin Veterinary School. Uh, there was an uh, the thing about this on Morning Edition this morning. They're doing some great work treating animals with cancer. So there'll be a heartwarming story about, I think, a dog that uh, was treated there. So that's uh, one to look out for among all the other crazy, uh, silly ads. Although I'll say... Super Bowl ads have sort of, they kind of reached their high point a couple of years ago, and I think some of them have been kind of the disappointing. I get to the point where, you know, after halftime, I'm so used to leaving to do something during a commercial football game, I always think, oh, gosh, no, I'm supposed to be to be listening and paying attention. And then when they review all the commercials, you know, online, 
the next day, I'm kind of like, I, you know, I don't even remember seeing that one. So that's how well I've trained myself to sort of not pay attention to the commercials when the one time of the year where you're supposed to do it. Well, you can't just wait for the next day. And well, that's true. All online. That's exactly. usually what I do. And then you get the benefit of having everybody's critique in front of you. <laughs> also, we have a story about the unluckiest guy in America. It's a Mississippi hunter who was bitten on the head by a copper head that, uh, that was in a tree. The hunter was taking the last of his dog pack back to a truck on Wednesday evening when he encountered a flooded ditch. He found a narrow spot where he could jump across, but when he leaned forward to jump, he felt a severe pain on the left side of his head. He was airlifted to UMC and received five vials of antivenom to help with the effects of the bite and soon began feeling better. Flood water is believed to have forced the snake into the tree. Wow, so much for looking on the ground in front of you when you walk in the woods. Yeah, getting bit on the head just sounds like the worst. Yeah, it? yeah. So fortunately, though, uh, as it says, he's he's doing better. But, yeah, that would be, uh, you know, another thing, too. He, he found a way across the ditch. He didn't try to wade into floodwaters. That's another thing we're told not to do. Mm. So he was doing it all the right way, uh, but yet he was unfortunately uh, bit but do, is doing well. And, you know, it mm. sounds like his dogs were with him. Usually... It's you hear that it's a dog will get bit instead of the person, but mm-hmm. I guess that or they sense it on the ground. The but in the tree, the oh my goodness! Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, our guest today is George Phillips uh, from the, Na- the Museum of Natural Science. George, always good to have you on the show with us. Thank you. Always good to be here. Uh, normally, you're here kind of promoting the Fossil Road Show. It's a little bit of ways off, but uh, it's, that's something I guess that's sort of almost maybe year-round preparation. It is. Um, we have um, every year the Fossil Road Show, first Saturday in March. Um, but, you know, you have to start getting the word out early. I'm actually kind of late right now. I should have already been contacting all of my exhibitors. Um, but actually, that's going to start next week. And uh, we hope to have another rousing year of interesting fossils from all over. I get surprised every year at what walks in the door. And you said early March? Correct. The first Saturday in March. That's March 7th. Um, and uh, we have a guest speaker this year already. It will be James Starnes with the Mississippi Office of Geology. And uh, he's going to, I think, at least in part, speak about um, where the Native Americans uh, got their raw material for making stone tools and where that material is sourced. Um, and so, again, uh, sort of a, a advanced promo here. If folks are not familiar with the Fossil Roadshow is, give us sort of a just kind of quick general overview. So throughout the year, I, I get uh, walk-ins, emails, letters, letters not so much anymore, uh, phone calls, text messages of people needing fossils identified. Um, but we like to set aside one day a year where we get everybody with that same interest that uh, who share that hobby interest. Um, it's a chance for kids to get to learn more about paleontology. Um, it has inspired some kids to go into paleontology. Uh, maybe not just that show, but a lot of our activities related to fossils and paleontology at the museum. Um, we reared uh, a young girl, Brenna Hart, in the museum. You probably remember Brenna. And she is now working on her PhD wow. in paleontology. I did not know Our that. first paleontology oh. graduate, as it were, in quotes, from the Museum of Natural Science. But yeah, the, the uh, Fossil Road is a venue to inspire people to do such things, but also to share your hobby and get your specimens identified. We have folks from Alabama, Louisiana, including some of our exhibitors from those places as well. 
And it must be exciting to when a group of people with a shared interest like that gets together and the different things that you see there and, and you know, share war stories and that sort of thing. It must be really an exciting uh, time each year. It is. It's quite the hubbub. Uh, they share these stories like they're war stories. And some of them involve snakes. <laughs> My favorite part of it is how many kids are in there. There are really a lot of kids with, oh, a, absolutely. with a shoebox or a we get throngs. box. Or, yeah. And we have a fossil hunting activity. Yeah. As long as it's not raining outside, they can do an outdoor uh-huh. fossil activity. And then every now and then there's a family that comes in pulling the wagon behind them. And <laughs> yes, that, that happened a couple really of years ago. Fun. Yeah. I mean, she literally pulled a wagon with bones in it, a little Red, wider, yeah, wag, right, red, wider wagon. That's I was, and they had everything covered up with a blanket, which made it very intriguing. I was following around. In this case, yeah. the bones weren't fossil; they were cow bones. But oh well, they could have been. They could have been. So again, mark your calendar on the first week of March for that. And again, we'll certainly have more about that as it gets closer on the show. And also uh, throughout the hour, George always is always great to bring some uh, visual aids with him. And there's one that. Uh, that I'm interested to, to talk about because it's really well, – let's go ahead. we got a couple of minutes now, so I don't, I don't want to spoil your thing here, George. But that fossil to me is the most complete sort of thing that looks like it's supposed to be thing than I've ever seen a fossil. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that earlier. So many fossils uh, are representing fragments of the bodies. Um, or sometimes just the shell. We forget that there's animals in these shells or that the shell is part of the animal. But, yeah, so we have a crab here from Blue Springs, Mississippi. Actually, this particular specimen, like we get a lot of crabs from Blue Springs. We find a lot of crabs up there. This one's from nearby, from the old Union County Lake, actually found many years ago. Still from the same county there uh, near New Albany, Mississippi. But it actually has the uh, forelimbs. Some people call these the claws. Uh, the forelimbs are, are known as the chelipeds, and it has the rudiments uh, or the bases of the walking legs. All The legs are not uh, complete, but at least you can tell this is a thing with legs. And as Java <laughs> said earlier, I recognize that. It looks delicious. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to second that. But most of the time we just find the torso, or mm-hmm. also known as the carapace. This is a, a model of just the torso, the legs missing. We, it's very rare that we actually get the legs intact. Yeah. Can you just imagine a scenario by which a crab would be preserved quickly enough because those little thin parts, even the little thin legs on yes. the sides, and those I, can't, I mean, they've got to just decompose Well, I need quick, to clarify that, what I mean by intact. I mean the uh-huh. legs actually attached to the crabs. Yes. Um, we find a lot of legs. There, in fact, we obviously the legs outnumber the carapaces, and I'm sorry I didn't clarify that, but uh, we do see lots of limbs, but they don't stay attached to the body. Sadly, you um, have to excavate very carefully for that to happen. So and that's they're even hard in a, to recognize. I would mm-hmm. think it, it would be. Uh, you often don't need the legs. Uh, but to find a leg with no body, sometimes that can be complicated because most of the diagnostic characteristics lie in the carapace or the body, that is. And that was a fairly large-sized uh, crab that got uh, preserved. It's, what, about uh, what, four or five inches across, I guess, maybe? maybe it a little is. Bit more than that. It is. Now, let me point out his two fingers here. These are called the dactyls. He's got two little fingers that come together to make the pincer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have dactyls of – so each one of those is a dactyl. We have dactyls – look how big those are. There's a, a centimeter. They're less than an inch long for those of you who can't see this, uh, most of you. Um, <laughs> but we have dactyls that are this long and longer, oh, wow. longer than my finger. Gosh. 
uh, of an unknown crab because all we get are the dactyls preserved. Huh. Uh, we, in fact, the dactyls are so wicked looking with all these bumps and hooks. We call it, it's nicknamed the Killer Crab. <laughs> oh, now I'm thinking of Dungeness Crabs from Oregon. They're yeah, always yeah. so good. About that size, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, I really don't think they taste, I think that blue crab tastes the best. Maybe that's because oh, that was the yeah. first crab for me. Mm-hmm. But, but Dungeness are so much fun because they're so big. Oh, they are. You pull those up, it's like, oh. Super All right. crab. Time to take our first break of the hour. When we get back, we'll continue our talk with paleontologist George Phillips. Always a wealth of knowledge about fossils of Mississippi, so don't hesitate to call and join our conversation. If you have some fossil-related questions, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 Or you can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, and today in studio we have our resident paleontologist, George Phillips. You could join our conversation with a question or a comment. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. George, you've got a, an event coming up on Tuesday, February 4th. We're going to talk about that for just a minute, but a couple of follow-ups. We were talking about this large crab fossil that you found. And again, we were talking about how really preserved it is, and you can definitely tell it's a crab. It's almost completely intact. And I think you were telling us before the show started, it's just kind of the right mix of of things that happened that it is so complete like that? Yeah, you have to have this perfect recipe of chemistry, uh, sediments, the type of sediments, and they're affecting that preservation. And the fact that anything is preserved in the fossil record that's millions of years old is nothing short of a miracle, I guess. But some sediments are more conducive to that. Um, and in the hillside at uh, Blue Springs, Mississippi, right across from the Toyota plant, there is just the right mixture of sediments. It's uh, clay to sandy clay, and it preserves all manner of fossils. It's such a perfect, it's such a perfect mixture of the right chemistry that it has uh, documented with it, or we have documented from those sediments, the largest, um, the, actually the most diverse and largest quantitatively and volumetrically um, assemblage of crab and lobster and shrimp remains for the last five million years of the Cretaceous period than anywhere else in the world. It's a shame we weren't around back then because yeah. if you like seafood, that yeah. would have been. Uh, we've like got 34 right species. Here, yeah, right there in Blue Springs, Mississippi. We got 34 species now. Well, the very first person to do research was uh, there at Blue Springs was a non Mississippian, an out of stater, Dr. Gail Bishop at Georgia Southern. And he did his research in the late 70s. And uh, the first curator at the, at the Museum of Natural Science, Mike Frazier, who recently passed away, sadly. Um, he uh, uh, met Gail in the field, and they did a few outings together. And uh, we have some of those first set of, uh, first fossils collected along with Dr. Bishop there in the late 70s at Blue Springs. But back then, uh, Gail only reported 11 species of crustacean there. And over the years, we've uh, added, Gail has, and uh, we have added uh, more to it, 34 different species now. 
When did you get interested in crustaceans? Uh, when you, when you guys gave me the job, <laughs> I was tasked with learning a lot of things that I was unfamiliar with in the realm that I grew up in and studied in. And uh, so I just decided to tackle everything I didn't know about. And crustaceans and whales were on the list, as you know. <laughs> uh, that thing is, what was the word again you used for the, the body part of the crab? The So the forelimbs are kind of the business end of, of the uh, crab, as it were. And they're the largest limbs. They're called the chelipeds. And they contain the so-called claws at the end, the little fingers, the dactyls. And that's what they use to forage with and feed themselves with. And then the shell is the um, is, a, is considered a skeleton on the outside of the body. Okay, and outside is relative; it's still part of the body. It's just that it's not embedded in the body. And then I notice you've got another one that's just the just the body part there. Uh, and our our crab that's complete is kind of a I don't know a rocky color. It's sort of a grayish it brownish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other one you have is is sort of a, a white color. Now, is it again what? The sentiment, the soup that makes them, that determines the different colors of of the fossils. Well, in in this case, yeah, and that's true. It, in fact, all cases, that's true. But in this case, this is actually a reproduction. Ah, okay. It's hollow in the center. This is a three D print that we did from a detailed scan of another crab. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yes, and so this the the uh, bottom side was not preserved, so we decided not to scan the bottom side. In fact, it was thoroughly involved in the rock. Uh, but this is the top side. As you can see, it's got three jagged lines on the carapace or the body uh, uh, going front to back and then two jagged lines flanking it. And these are the eyes uh, right here up front. The eyes are placed up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, the eyes would have been positioned in these gr- two grooves right here. And so occasionally we do get the eyes actually preserved. Typ- typically they've fallen off. All right, uh, we've got some phone calls to get to, so let's start by going to Bill in Greenwood. Good morning, Bill. Go ahead. Yep. Hang on one sec. All right, Bill, we've got you on the air. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, so when I was a little kid, uh, I used to look at little gravel rocks. I never did get at anywhere to really look. I, I found something that's about like the size of a dime. It was really pretty. It had little little uh, uh, circles all in it, and it had little, you could look like it was little flowers. But uh, later on, I was at, at the Vicksburg Hotel. They had a quite a good display of stuff, and uh, I was just wondering, you know, where I, I am in the Sunflower County, uh, LaFleur County, I, I wonder where you go to find something like, uh, like, like the one thing they had displayed there. It was about the size of a brick. It was a tooth. <laughs> I thought that was pretty amazing, but where do you go to find stuff like that? And how do you how do you get out in the water to look for it without getting bit by a bunch of snakes? <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't worry about the snakes so much. Just be cautious. Uh, I've never been bitten my whole life, and I've um, encountered a lot of snakes walking in creeks. But you say you're from Greenwood. A lot of people get in boats and go out on the Mississippi River and look the gravel bars. And you mentioned that you had collected gravel. I assume it was in that general region in the in the Delta or in the Mississippi floodplain. Um, there are creeks, especially along the western edge of the uh, Mississippi River floodplain, the Delta, that is, and the Lurse Hills that are filled with gravel and lots of fossils in those. Or everywhere you can find those gravel uh, deposits, uh, gravel pits, of course, you know, you need to get permission 
to get access those. But if you're in uh, Greenwood, okay, so you're in Greenwood, so you just need to go north and south and find landowners who will let you into those creek beds along the uh, Lurse Hills there. Those creeks are full of gravel, and those gravel's full of fossils. Would you have anything like that here? Like a, like I said, the tooth, like, about like the side of a brick. <laughs> yeah, uh, there again in the Lurse Hills. That, that, that tooth you describe is probably a tooth that shows up somewhat regularly in the Lurse Hills called a mastodon tooth. Uh, people yeah. find them with some regularity. And you said the one you saw was on display at the Vicksburg Hotel? Yeah, and, and they had another one there that was real big. I think it was some sort of a rhinoceros or, or uh, uh, some sort of ancient animal that lived, was living back in them days. Uh, I can't think what the name of it would be, but uh, some mammal, great big, huge mammal. And it was a gigantic tooth. Uh, I mean, it was really big. I mean, you know, they had a mastodon. I think it was bigger than a mastodon. Well, it could have been the uh, third molar of a mammoth, which can be two, two and a half times the size of a mastodon tooth. Uh, when when I go to see the display, I used to go there to the coin show a lot, and it was a permanent display. And I was always drawn to that tooth there and the different teeth there because they were so big, you know. Well, I just wish I could have bought one. <laughs> there was a guy that came to the coin show one time, and he was selling stuff like that. But, I mean, he wanted so much money for just one of them tooth. <laughs> well, I wonder where those specimens ended up. I'd love I don't to know, know where I, they are now. Yeah. Do you know if the Vicksburg Hotel displays are still up? I have. I don't know. I haven't been down there in a couple of years, but I, I don't probably it might not be. Uh, but uh, I think it was at the Holiday Inn. Oh, okay. Or, or there was another hotel just down from the Holiday Inn. I think it was called the Rebel Inn or the, the Plantation Inn. But uh, it might still be there. But it was a real nice little small display of uh, a whole bunch of uh, stuff. And uh, I, I spend my time when I come out of the coin show looking at all that stuff. They had it all out in the halls and different areas. Well, Bill, my best advice for your fossil hunting success is to hang out in the Lurse Hills and find landowners or friends who have access to uh, creek beds. And there you will find the treasures you seek. All right. <clears throat> Bill, thanks for your call. Let's move on next uh, to our friend Lee calling in from Woodville. Good morning, Lee. Go ahead. Good morning. Good morning. I would like to um, ask Mr. George Phillips. Several weeks ago, there was an article in the local and Woodville Republican paper from uh, um, the... Um, Chaplain Roscoe Barnes up at the um, Wilson County Correctional Facility. Yes. He stated that he had found some rocks over at the park about um, three miles north of Woodville, and um, he sent them up the photos of them. He did. Up to you. I had spoke to you last summer concerning the same exact type of rock that he had said he had found. And they were supposed to be 35 million years old. I'd like you to go back again and tell us what type of um, fossils that were in those rocks. And I think you said they didn't they didn't originally come from this county. And also, I'd like for you to, find, to speak about on the um, road up at the Homerton National Forest, in Wilkerson, Franklin, Amick counties, there are large, large um, 
old trees that have turned to rock. They are beautiful trees. They were trees. They're not trees anymore. They're fossils. But what is happening is people are going into the home of the National Forest and they're chipping off of these these um, trees. They chip off of them. I think they're taking pieces of them. What can you do or tell these people? Do not mess with that. Leave it alone. Let other people enjoy it. That's all I want to say. I agree with you, Lee. They they shouldn't be uh, chipping those off if they're on government property. Uh, That's for the public to enjoy. Everybody wants a souvenir, I guess, don't they? Uh, It it happens. Um, Yeah, I think you put it well. I can't add any more to that. But regarding... um, Roscoe Barnes is inquiry with me. Those uh, rocks were placed there to uh, stabilize eroding banks along a lake. Uh, You see these blocks of limestone. They're about the size of a watermelon or larger. Some of them can get pretty big. They can be a couple of feet across. But everybody's seen these, and we call this limestone riprap. Today it's mined in uh, northern Alabama, northwestern Alabama. Uh, in the Tennessee River Valley, and it's imported all over the southeast and the mid-south to help with erosion problems. And it's full of fossils, too. And so that's what uh, Mr. Barnes had found. And he, I think he showed me pieces of brachiopods, if I'm not mistaken. I see so many fossils over the course of just a day. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he had brachiopods brachiopod fossils in there. But I I advise all of you fishermen in particular who are fishing along these uh, riprap banks uh, everywhere to pay attention to those rocks. There's no telling what you'll find in those rocks because their fishermen encounter those places more than anyone. All right, Lee, always good to hear from you. Thanks for your call. We need to take another break. When we get back, Jim is on the line from Madison. Jim, if you'll hold through the break, we'll get to your call. Also, we'll talk about the upcoming lecture on Tuesday, February 4th. 41 Years of Paleontology at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. If you'd like to join our conversation, we've got some open phone lines. The number to call is one mpb ring It's 1-877-672-7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll have more after this break, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. We're back on Creature Comforts. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield and uh, our guest today, George Phillips, paleontology curator at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're talking about fossil hunting and fossils in general today. Uh, if you'd like to join our conversation, we've got some open phone lines. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number, it's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can also send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. And you know, I failed to mention because we jumped into the conversation pretty quick, but George is giving a lecture at the Museum of Natural Science in Jackson on February the 4th, which mm-hmm. is this coming Tuesday mm-hmm. at noon. And you'll get to see all these fossils in person and hear a lot more about them. So I thought we should plug that for you. 
Right, and we'll get in, dive into some details on that, but we do have some callers to get to, and Jim in Madison's been holding for us. Thanks for holding through the break. Jim, you're up on the air, so go ahead. Good morning. Um, about 45 years ago, I had, um, well, I was required, as a matter of fact, to, uh, to spend about three weeks on the Fort Hood Military Reservation in Texas providing communications for Army war games. And um, I was at a place called Anderson Mountain out on the reservation. Uh, elevation was over 1,200 feet. And the ground was literally covered with marine fossils, mostly shells and vertebrae. And um, is it unusual to find that sort of fossil deposit at that kind of elevation? Uh, was this in very west Texas? I forget where Fort Hood is. No, Fort Hood is about halfway between Austin and Dallas. Oh, so. oh, there. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's familiar terrain for me. Uh, I've been there a couple times. It's not far and, from Waco. Right. So it's near the uh, airport, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually have some fossils from that location um, donated by a, um, um, an associate of the museum many years ago. Um, they are fossils of Cretaceous age, and that area is rich in Cretaceous fossils. And when they're building or adding on to subdivisions in that area in the greater Dallas-Fort Worth area, they're always encountering those limestone deposits at high elevations and at low elevations. And it's absolutely chock full of fossils. Yeah, uh, so, you could absolutely not take a step without stepping on a yeah. fossil. I mean, literally. That's not an exaggeration. And and part of that reason is there are, there are quite a few layers that tend to have concentrations of fossils. So not only do you have the right chemistry of uh, sediments to preserve fossils, but fossils can be concentrated in different layers depending upon... Um, the environments that were occurring and and created those layers way back when. So if you say, for example, if there's a lot of sediment being dumped into a particular place on the seafloor, say by a river, or it's just naturally raining down from high in the water column, the sediment that is, your sedimentation rates are high, then the fossils appear dilute in the sediments. That is, they're not concentrated. But if you slow down sedimentation, the fossils, the bodies of these animals accumulate and uh, they're concentrated. So that's one way to concentrate shells and have an unusually um, high concentration of fossils. Uh, And that area was way away from any rivers that were dumping sediments. It's uh, uh, It's a carbonate bank that was way away from shore and it was very hospitable to organisms uh, at that time. Well, actually, for some 30, 35 million years in that part of the Cretaceous period. And it's just just um, incredible diversity and abundance of shells concentrated in that area. And in part due to the fact that there were no rivers dumping sediments and creating deltas that diluted the fossils. Right. Well, I was fascinated the entire time and, and not... not simply because there was nothing else to do in the middle of the <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with paleontologist George Phillips from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And we've got some open phone lines, so if you have a fossil-related question or a story that you'd like to share with us, call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 
672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, George, speaking of stories to share, I'm sure you'll have uh, several of them on your lecture coming up Tuesday, February 4th at the museum at noon. Uh, 41 years of paleontology at the museum. Tell us a little about uh, what you hope to talk about. Yeah, we've, we've got a lot done in that time. We've documented so much in Mississippi's past. I'm the third curator uh, since its inception. Um, Libby was part of that team of people that created the program there at the museum. Uh, so we owe her a great credit, as oh. we do to so many things there that have come together to make that museum what it is today. Um, but... Uh, in 41 years, we've managed to get to many parts of the state. I'll be talking about um, some of our more fossiliferous portions of the state. Um, sadly, there are still a lot of regions we haven't gotten to and sampled, and we often depend upon fossil collectors to report these things to us. Um, in fact, we have had very valuable, scientifically valuable things come to our attention over the years because of collectors. Uh, I'm just one person in the program. I cannot do it all. Uh, it would not be possible for our many, uh, our collecting community out there, and particularly those who donate fossils to the museum. Um, we've documented so much, and there's so much that remains to be published. One of the uh, things that I'll be talking about at the, another thing I'll be talking about at the lecture is the things that we've accumulated from collectors. Last year was a banner year in um, in my publication, so I got four things, four full length articles published. Usually, I only hope for about one <laughs> article a year uh, because I stay so busy. But we've documented the uh, an incredible accumulation of crabs in the collection, a high diversity over these four papers and added to uh, Dr. Gail Bishop's work in particular that I mentioned earlier. But again, it wasn't just me. Uh, my forebears, uh, Dr. Daly and uh, Mike Frazier, that accumulated a lot of these specimens too. So we, we managed, the three of us managed to get a lot done. Dr. Daly uh, dug up a couple of whales and a mastodon. Uh, and um, Mike um, reported on the first Ice Age fossils from Mississippi in a uh, in a scientific sense. They'd been reported before, but he was the first one to organize it in a, uh, a very nice little study on the paleoecology of Mississippi during the Pleistocene. Now, I think earlier you mentioned that one of the things you have here is a th was made with a 3D printer. So I'm wondering, talk about technology as it is advanced, how that's been a help to uh, paleontologists. Well, um, 3D printing is certainly uh, a boon. It's still cheaper if you don't have your own machines it's still cheaper to mold and cast them um but a lot of um, programs have their own uh we're pretty low tech at the museum but i did have university of southern mississippi i paid them to do some scanning and printing um, for us a couple of years ago as part of um this published project right here um it was a in this case the need was to to preserve this was because of the fragility of the specimen. Even when we preserved it with these um, vinyl glues and acetates, it was still quite friable. In fact, the carapace, like you see here on this fossil crab, was not preserved. It was it's what we call a pseudomorph or a false shape. It, sediments and minerals took on the shape of the carapace. You've heard of molds and 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 uh, internal and external molds and casts. This is yet another type of fossil preservation where you don't actually have any part of the original animal. Um, 
so it, it was necessary to share it. It was a unique fossil. There's no others like it. And so we had access to USM's scanner printer, and uh, we were able to share it digitally around the world. So now everybody has a digital copy of it, and they can print it off if they want to and study it, since there's only one specimen of it to this day, <laughs> to my knowledge. Another caller on the line will say good morning to Stephanie, who's calling in from Gulfport. Go ahead. You're on the air with us. Yes, hi. Good morning. Thanks for um, taking my call. Good morning. Sure. Um, yeah, you were looking for, you know, to hear people's stories about, um, you know, fossils. Um, my, I have a fossil. My dad found it in Tennessee. I was told, um, I took it to the, uh, some scientist at the local college. I forget his title, but he said it's a crinomy. I might be mispronouncing that. A crinoid? That could be it. It's a... It looks like a big worm. Um, it's about oh. as long as my yeah. pointer finger, and is, the diameter is bigger than my thumbnail, and it's got a bunch of Oh, wow. Of segments. That's a big one. Um, it's y- like 15 segments to it that I can see. But anyway, I took it to this scientist at the college, and he called it a crinomy or crinum. A cr- crinum. Probably a, a crinoid, although there are many different types of crinoids with many different names and he could have been using the scientific name and that could be what you're referring to sadly i don't know the extent of all the different paleozoic crinoids uh, that's uh, those fossils up there from the paleozoic era um was it the university of tennessee martin well actually no um oh. it was found in tennessee bonacqua tennessee to be exact um, but I'm uh, I'm here in Mississippi, and I right. took it to the local college here in Mississippi. Oh, um, oh, okay, I see. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably it, at uh, University of Southern Mississippi Coast it, Campus. Was that where you went? Well, no, ma'am. It was actually the junior college. Oh, okay. I, okay. I just walked in and said, "Could I show this to a professor?" And you know, they po- I don't you know go there, but um. So know. what you have is. Uh, also called a lily, and these are plant-like or plant-looking animals that are distant relatives of sand dollars, sea cucumbers, sea stars, that kind of thing. These things called echinoderms, uh, the platy-skinned animals. And what you've got in particular is the trunk. You described a snake-like object. Uh, that is the trunk or stalk, in quotes, as it were, the analogy of the stalk in a, a flowering plant. And the head, again, as it were, um, is the sort of the flower-like object, hence this nickname, um, um, sea lily. Uh, but they're not related to plants whatsoever. They are every bit animals. And uh, you said you had 15 little segments, and those little segments are called the ossicles. And in the center, there is a hole, a conduit, by which their um, circulatory system, called the water vascular system, is connected throughout the body. But, yeah, that's what you've got. All right, Stephanie, thanks for your call. Let's take one final break this hour. We'll get back. We'll wrap things up for today on Creature Comforts, visiting with George Phillips, the paleontologist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, the curator of the paleontology program. We've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to work a call in before the end of the hour, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Reach us at one 672 7464 You can always email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back to wrap up the program after this, so stay tuned. 
On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Joining me on the show each week are healthcare professionals who add their expertise to the discussion. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and from the museum as well, paleontology curator George Phillips. We've been talking about fossils today uh, and still have a little bit of time and some phone lines. If you'd like to call in, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. You can always email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Charlotte's on the line from Gulfport. We're going to get to that call in just a minute, but we've had some excitement as our director, Jason Klein, brought George in a specimen, and it really is amazing. Uh, George, if you would, tell us tell us what Jason just gave you. It is a uh, flat rock, uh, less than an inch thick, about um, five and a half inches long, and it's kind of dull looking on one side, but when you turn it over, um, ancient marine life comes alive, <laughs> at least one particular organism. So what we see is a uh, pattern of uh, net-like structures here and there distributed throughout the rock. Now, not the holes you would see in a modern net, but uh, well, maybe a butterfly net. So think of a butterfly net draped over this rock, or at least scraps of it. Uh, this is called a bryozoan. It's a colony of um, bryozoans. Each little dot, Kevin, in that uh, pattern is where an animal lived, a single animal. So what are we looking at? Hundreds mm-hmm. of little animal just occupying the uh, the parts of this colony that we see. Now, this colony stood about this tall. The only reason I say this is I... I know which particular one this is. They can be anywhere from um, six inches tall to you know a foot or more tall. But they sat erect up off of the seafloor, and they were spiral-shaped. And these net-like structures emanated from the spirals. So imagine an auger, as it were, an auger-shaped colony of little bitty animals that are less than, uh, well, about a millimeter or less than a cross. Uh, it's a truly spectacular specimen, and Jason um, handed this off to Java, and Java handed it <laughs> off to us in uh, referencing a football. But again, you know, the, the fact that how, I mean, millions of years old and just the, the fine detail, because you, you, like I say, when you pick, as you say, if you look at it from a, oh, it's a piece of rock, but when you look at it up close, you can definitely see uh, the details, George, that you were talking about, and it's really amazing. So that you know, is, a, it is quite a fine. It reminds me, too, it's one of those kind of rocks, if we put a little water on that, when it's wet in a creek, that's some of why you find mm. more fossils when you're walking in that's a creek, true. because when it's wet, it picks up that detail a little bit better. And I wonder. Oh, it does. I want to ask him how he found it and when. And oh, I'm anxious to interview him too. Was involved too. Yeah, yeah. All right, so Jason, if you're listening, we're coming for you after the show. Yeah, you know, it, it. In fact, it kind of it follows on your thing about labeling. It's mm. interesting just to look at, but if you know about where it came from and right. when, then it gets a lot more interesting. Oh, absolutely. All right, back to the phone lines we go. Charlotte is on the line from Gulfport. Good morning, Charlotte. Go ahead. Good morning. 
I wanted to share with you that I have a vertebrae of a prehistoric whale that was dug up um, kind of north of Jackson. I can't remember the name of the town, but it's about the size of a, a soccer ball. But um, I have that, and I think it's called a Zyglodon, maybe. I have the little description. Of course, I don't have it with me. Yeah, uh, you were very close, closer than most people. It's called a Zygladon, and okay. several Zygladon um, partial skeletons have been found at that lime pit. It's in Cynthia, Mississippi. I'm fairly certain yeah. that's where you're referring to. That's it. You're right. Uh, but other whales have been found in the Madison area, just whale-rich deposits in that area. Um, but, yeah, so uh, I'd love to see a picture of it, if you wouldn't mind sharing uh, the no, image. Not you, at all. Uh, you can um, uh, call the museum and ask to speak to me, and then I'll share my personal phone number, and you can text it, or I'll share my email address, okay. and you can uh, email an image of it to me, and I can tell you more about it. But my predecessor, my immediate predecessor, Do- Dr. Daly, uh, she dug up uh, part of a whale there that turned out to be new to science. Wow. Uh, not just the species, but also the genus. Um, she was going to describe it as such but decided that there were more competent people out there that knew more about fossil whales. (laughs) And so she turned it over to um, a guy at the Cranbrook Institute at the University of Michigan Mm -hmm. and uh, Dr. Mark Ewan. And uh, he described it as a new species in 2005. And it was named Cynthia Cetus is the genus name. I guess you can guess where the genus name comes from. (laughs) Cynthia, Mississippi. Cetus means whale. So whale from Cynthia. Cynthia Cetus. Maxwelli for the guy who found it and donated it. And um, Mr. Maxwell is in has been in touch with me since I came to the museum. And he's still very much a big fan of fossil whales, as you might imagine. But Charlotte, it's good to hear from another person on the coast. That is sadly an area that I have neglected over the years. But the Gulf Coast uh, Gem and Mineral Society has invited me to come down there to the show one year. So I need to take them up on their offer and see some of those fossils you guys are finding down there. All right, so Charlotte, you could either, if you could take a picture, you could either email it to animals at mpbonline.org, or George, if she were to call the museum, the main number is, do you know? 601-576-6000. Okay. All right, Charlotte, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Got a couple of minutes left. We've talked a little bit about crustaceans on the show. Uh, Is Mississippi crustacean rich when it comes to fossils? There are certain parts of it. Uh, Well, that Blue Springs area is the richest with 34 different species. Uh, But crabs, lobsters, and their kin have turned up in uh, what's called the whale belt so where you also find fossil whales, and that's the reference to the whale belt, Clark County, uh, Jasper County, Yazoo County, these counties where fossil whales turned up, you also have a fairly decent chance to find at least uh, crab remains, maybe fragments. Um, we've got crabs from um, uh, Smith County, Mississippi, in the Bay Springs area. In fact, one of my papers from last year was reporting on many species of uh, crabs from central Mississippi as opposed to northeast Mississippi, which we were talking about earlier. And many of these central Mississippi crabs were from the Bay Springs area. And the Brian and Beth Gable family has allowed us access to uh, properties that they own in Smith County. And therein we were able to discover uh, quite a diversity of box crabs. In fact, we added two or three, three new species 
of box crab and named one of them after the Gable family. And uh, I don't know if you'll be posting the pictures later, but you can see a picture of one of the uh, Gable crabs. But uh, we've documented quite a diversity of things on their property and other properties in central Mississippi, including some crustaceans. So as we indicated earlier, the fossil record is very selective and fickle. Um, And that's certainly the case with crustaceans, where you can only find in the special places. All right. Only got about half a minute left. Just time to remind you that George will be doing a lecture at the museum uh, on Tuesday, February 4th at noon, about the 41 years of paleontology at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And again, mark your calendars for the first Saturday in March uh, for the Fossil Roadshow. So, uh, and again, George, you would encourage folks if they've got something they think might be a fossil, don't know what it is, that's the time when they can come in and, and see if you can figure out what they've got. Absolutely. And if you don't have a fossil, if you don't have anything, come in and see lots of things. <laughs> All right. Uh, that is going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of MPB Think Radio, funding provided in part by generous listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash comforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo. So for Libby Hartfield and our guest paleontologist, George Phillips, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next at 10, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Conference. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.